everybody, welcome to Chuck Yates Needs a Job, the podcast. In my ongoing series on the railroad commissioner, I guess we can kind of like title this anybody but Wayne. I'm just kidding, Wayne. You're more than welcome on the podcast if you'd like. I'm just joking. We've had on Sarah Stodgener, who ran in the Republican primary. We had on Luke Warford, who is the Democratic nominee. So of course, being that I'm the libertarian, I had to have the libertarian candidate on. So I got Jaime Diaz on today. Did I come anywhere close to pronouncing your name correctly? That was super good. That was no way. Really? Yeah, that, that was great. Uh, Jaime. So the thing with Jaime is it's Jamie in English, right? But uh, yep. in Spanish, the J's an H. So uh, so it's Jaime, and then and then my middle name is Andres, and which is like Andrew, and then my last name is Diaz. That Diaz is like the number ten in Spanish. Only difference is that with Diaz, um, there's no there's no emphasis on the I, so it's just Diaz. My last name is Diaz with an accent on the I. So, so listeners of the podcast know that I add three to four letters to every word in English. So the fact I got remotely <laughs> close in Spanish is uh, is unbelievable. So let's do this. Who the hell are you? So. Like I said, my name is Jaime Diaz. I'm the Liberty candidate for Railroad Commission. I grew up in Brownsville, Texas. Um, um, I, I grew up there. My, my dad um, um, is, does immigration law down there. And my mom, you know, uh, she was she, was, she had her own flower shop when she had me. She left that and, and, and she raised me and my two other siblings. Um, so I, I, I went, you know, school up until college, in Brownsville. Then when I went to college, actually my, my plan was originally to go into political science. So I went to school in DC and in DC, I was working with my congressman, uh, Filimon Bela. He's actually a Democrat. And, you know, I don't-, I don't So like, what college in DC? Uh, George Washington. George Washington, okay, yeah. gotcha. Yeah, so I applied to Georgetown, but I, I, I didn't make the cut. Now, is uh, it still true? What used to be like when I was back in the day, so a hundred years ago, the way you got into Georgetown was you applied to the nursing school. Is that still the uh, is that still the trick you're supposed to do? You apply to the nursing school and then you show up and go, "Ooh, I changed my mind." Yeah, I mean that, that's the strategy. I, I didn't know that, but yeah, you're, you you have to apply to the easiest major in whatever school you apply to, and then from there, once you're in, you you could transfer to to whatever, right? But uh, like for example, to UT, I applied to Macombs. I did not get into Macombs, right? So, but I mean, maybe if I would apply to UT, you know. Something not as. It's crazy today. I mean, I, I don't know that I would have gotten in. I would get into college today. You know, <laughs> just kind of. It was really funny, though. So way back in the day, Oklahoma was playing Nebraska on uh, football. And so we're sitting around watching it on a Saturday. And, you know, every one of the Nebraska football players, their major was general studies. And so we... uh we we sat there all the next week calling the admissions office at Nebraska. We're really interested in this general studies major. Can you send us information? I think finally uh, Nebraska was like, please stop calling. Please. <laughs> please stop calling. All right. So George Washington, you're working with a Democratic congressman. Uh -huh. Yeah. And I mean, I, I just didn't like engaging in politics 24-7. That's basically D.C., right? So I ended up switching back to Texas and going to school in SMU. And uh, which is in Dallas, 
And I started off in economics, ended up switching over to engineering, to mechanical engineering. So that's what I graduated as. And once I finished my, my four and a half years, I took an extra victory lap to finish. But um, as I finished that up, I, I decided to move back home to Texas to be with my family. I'd, I'd been away from them for almost five years at, at the time, right? So I moved back home in 2019. Um, when I moved back, I was working scrap metal sales for a bit. That, that was interesting. I was doing uh, software, software implementation. I worked for a while in a, with a company in Mexico in the U.S. Uh, it was doing software or research, um, like, like market analysis. And I got paid in pesos. That, that was not fun. <laughs> uh, but, 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 but I learned a lot. I learned a lot. Uh, and, uh, and then COVID started. So, so COVID kind of, you know, I, I guess I moved back and I, and I just moved back to Brownsville with the intention of just doing whatever I could, right? Right. So living with my parents and um, COVID starts and, you know, basically whatever, whatever momentum I had, it just kind of dried up. So um, a friend of mine actually suggested, hey, you know, there's going to be the school board election. Why don't you run for that? So I had I never even considered running for office. I was 24 at the time. I figured, you know, you know, like, let's try it out, right? How hard could it be? Or I, I Hold I, on. Hold on. Decorum is actually going to make me ID you because I don't believe you're 24 <laughs> right now. No, no. Well, I, I was 24 at the time. Well, I don't think you're 24 right now. You're so young looking. Oh. But I say that as a compliment because trust you. me, trust me, in 20 years, you're going to love it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, I still get ID to buy to buy beer sometimes. Holy cow. 26. There you go. Yeah, thank you. You are 26. <laughs> Yeah, I know that, that. I mean, that, that's what came in my shirt because if I don't wear this shirt, I look like I'm 14 years old. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, if I if I had it my way, I would just wear a T-shirt. Um, but um, we yeah. support that at Digital Wildcatters. We're we're okay with that. So, all righty. So COVID's hitting. Your friend's saying run for school board. Mm -hmm. So I I mean I I for first off, like I went online right and I googled you know how to sign up for an election. Um, the only prerequisite is just you have to be 18 to run for school board. And uh, there's 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 three documents I think from the state. It's it's a TAC, the the treasurer assignment, and, and some other one. Simple enough. I printed them out, signed up, took them took them to to BISD to the Brownsville Independent School District building. Signed up for the election, and uh, and I mean I started started just uh, you know learn about you know BISD to learn about you know the the different issues that were affecting the school board, and you know, I was also able to get a campaign together. It was just me and my friends. You know, it was, it was, we didn't hire any professionals. So, uh, it was, it was a lot of fun and we, we didn't win. We, we, it was three candidates. We ended up getting second place, but, uh, but during that time was when I got really into Bitcoin. So, um, when the pandemic started, um, and they, and they started and they built the air, airlines pretty quick into it. Right. And when I was younger, when I was, when I was actually in, in uh, George Washington, my had bought me stress test by Tim, Timothy Gartner. And I mean, the first like third of the books talking about the moral hazard of bailing out the banks, right? That if you bail out the banks now, you're going to set a president that, you know, that too big to fail banks can do whatever they want. Right. If things get bad, they're going to get bailed out again. So, you know, you know, when COVID starts, I'm like, oh, the airlines, you know, they're, they're not going to get bailed out. Moral hazard. Right. And uh, they got bailed out immediately. And at, at which point, you know, I kind of uh, started to think like, you know, something's wrong here. Right. So, so I, I ordered... A, Ray Dalio has, you know, a series of three books and they're called uh, Big Debt Crises. And I started reading that and, and it was just talking about, you know, companies with, with lots of debt, how, how they get out of it normally, right? And the book they were out saying, you know, usually they get out of it because they 
raise taxes on on you know on the rich, which usually leads to capital flight. They um, they you know lo and behold, rich people can change their behavior and they employ <laughs> lawyers and accountants to do it. Yeah, go ahead. And uh, and yeah, they could they could also just inflate their currency away, right? If 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 the debt that they owe is in there and in the denominated currency, yeah, that, that they control so through inflation. And then the other two are just uh, default, just we're not going to pay it and that's it. And the third and the fourth one is kind of like a soft default. So, so, so like, you know, I'm not going to pay you back all the money, but, but uh, I'll, I'll, let's renegotiate, right? The debt. So those were the, those were the four. And I was like, wow, you know, looks like, you know, it's going to end. I mean, th- this big debt crisis can't end well for the dollar at the very least. So, um, I mean, first of all, I, I wanted to see how I, how I could buy gold. Right. But, uh, but I mean, that, that, that was, I mean, I wanted to custody my own gold. Right. And then that, I mean, it was just too much. So um, I ended up getting into Bitcoin and, you know, so I, I bought some Bitcoin, you know, bought some more. And I think two months in, I had all my money in Bitcoin. And I, I still have all my money in Bitcoin. So what, what, this. what, what levels are you buying in at back then? Pre-pandemic, what, five, 5,000? No. So, uh, so it was scary when I started buying because I started buying right after the 5,000 dip. Okay. And it was around, uh, it, it was right, right, it was going around like nine to 10 okay. around that time. So I was worried because I was like, wow, if I buy now and we dip back to five, well, I just am down 50%, right? But I mean, I figured, you know, lots of times in my life, you know, I've been like, well, you know, I should buy later on when the price gets lower. And I always regret it because the price always goes higher whenever, whenever I get in that mentality. So I'm like, I'm going to buy now. It goes down to 5,000. I'll buy more. But um, I'm not going to sit on the sidelines just because, because you know, when I'm looking at the little price chart, it used to be at five, right? So this was a, yeah, this was around, around nine, 10. And I mean, from there, I had rallies. It would go back down, do, do, yeah. do little rallies. It never went back down to five. But, um, but, but that was around the time that I got into Bitcoin. And then I started reading uh, the Bitcoin Center, right? L- like everybody into Bitcoin does. And it talks about Austrian economics, which I had never heard about in my entire life. And um, so, so I got really into that. Just you know, the, well, Austrian economics—it's just the idea that that um, you know, in free markets, the government should stay out of it. It's um, it's it's, it's very much in favor of just letting the business cycle play itself out without intervention, in favor of lots of creative destruction, right? So, so a, a good example, I guess, is kind of like the forestry system in California. How you know, whenever, whenever there's like little fires, they put them out real quick, and then this creates this this macro environment for these huge wildfires to the to then. Uh, to, to then uh, manifest themselves. And, and uh, that, I, I feel like that was kind of like what we had seen with the, with the 08 crisis, at least with, with, with the bailouts and, uh, and now heading, in, he- heading into COVID, I was like, well, so, so this might be, you know, the, the, the big wildfire, right? That. And um, so, so, so I was in Austrian economics to Bitcoin. And then with school board, when you're for school board, all of the teachers unions, they, they all send you questionnaires to fill out. And one of them asking you about school choice, about charter, charter schools. And I mean, this is my thinking. I mean, if, if, if anybody wants, wants to correct me on, on why I'm wrong, I, I would love to hear it. But my thinking was, well, if, if the school board's not doing a good job as it is, right, ultimately the victims are the children, right? So if, if parents think that, you know, that, 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 they, that their kid will be better off serviced in a charter school, I mean, by all means, they should be able to, you know, um, get a voucher, take that to a charter school. And end of the day, it pushes the, the, the ISD to do a better job, right? By, 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 holding, by at least allowing some free market, I guess, and, uh, and allowing 
parents to, you know, vote where their kids want, want to go to school at, right? So that got me down the libertarian rabbit hole. And uh, this is like, I'm about to break out in tears. <laughs> this is so beautiful. We've, we've taken, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but we've taken, growing up, probably more liberal of a Democrat, and we actually reasoned and we read and we studied, and now we're a libertarian. This is great. The um, now because you know the, my my issue on the school front is people are always you know your name whatever ist you are racist whatever if you don't s- support uh, public education and I always come back with I actually can live with public education I don't like your delivery mechanism your delivery mechanism is the same as my great great grandfather went to it's a public monopoly, if you live on this street, you go to that school. And so it's not that I'm opposed to public education. I can kind of live with we as a society are better off if everyone's educated, therefore let's all kick into the kitty. But to not have competition uh, introduced there, I mean, there's not a monopoly on the planet that doesn't suck. I mean, is there a good monopoly? I mean, it's be hard to argue. I, I don't think so. Yeah, no, I kind of I kind of agree there. So so you become so so studying to run for the school board, all this, you become the the libertarian. So why in God's name do you want to be a railroad commissioner? Um well well I mean taking taking it just a step further, um I, I think it's interesting that you said that about being a Democrat, because at least engaging with the, with the public, usually when I talk to Republicans, I mean they know what a libertarian is and they understand it. Democrats in general have no clue what a libertarian is. And I mean, that, that, that was at least uh, me growing up. You know, I, I knew that there's Republicans, Democrats. I knew that there was a Green Party and I knew that there's a Libertarian Party. I had absolutely no clue what either of the two stood for, right? And uh, and yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that is interesting regardless of at least the party's messaging that Democrats really don't know what a Libertarian is, um, or at least at least in my opinion. And uh, so going going back to the Road Commission thing. So when this happened, I started, so I started giving $25 to the party a year to just uh, do a small contribution and... Uh, and, and I mean, at this point, I was also done with politics. It, it's not really fun to run for office. Um, yeah, it sucks. Yeah, I mean, it's it's. We don't we don't need people digging into my background. I mean, <laughs> well, I mean, I'm 26, right? So I grew I grew up in the era of the cell phone. So yeah, I mean, if you dig. <laughs> oh no! I mean, God, if we had cell phones back in the day, oh my gosh. <laughs> no, but um, <laughs> but the nervous laugh, right? Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <but> no, mom. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I didn't I'm playing. Do that. Yeah. Um, but um, so um, so I started giving twenty five bucks to the party a year, and um, you know, eventually uh, somebody from the party or not from the party, uh, just just a libertarian reached out to me because I ended up getting twenty five dollars to the libertarian booster pack as a donation, and uh, they reached out. They're like, hey, you know, we saw you getting money. You're from South Texas. Tell us about yourself, right? So, you know, I just told them, look, I'm basically what I told you right now, right? And uh, they're like, all right, you know, hung up the phone, didn't think think much of, much of it, right? And, uh, oh, no, the reason that they, they reached out is because on the flyer that, 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 that they sent me for the booster pack, they, they had asked, do you want to run for office? Do you want to volunteer? Or do you want the party suggestion, right? So, like, I didn't really want to volunteer because, because I mean, I was only I was only libertarian that I knew in Brownsville, so I'm like, I'm not going to do a party of one here in Brownsville. Like, like, give me your suggestion on what I can do. Maybe I can 
I don't know, help you with memes or something, right? And um, and they end up calling me back a couple of days later. And 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 well, this friend of mine, he's like, so Jaime, you know, I, I think it'd be good if you ran for office. How do you feel about that? Like, well, you know, I just ran for school board. It was it was you know so so. Um, but what 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 are you thinking, right? And um, and you know, I was thinking maybe like something. I don't know, municipal level, something like that. And and he tells me, he's like, I think it'd be a good idea if you're for railroad commission. Which, I mean, at, at that point, I understood what railroad commission was. I understood it was a misnomer. I understood it oversaw the oil and gas industry. Um, actually, some um, so, so some uh, guy that, that I know, or some man that I know, he actually was railroad commissioner. He's from Brownsville. He went to my high school as well. And um, so, so, so I had a broad idea of what it was. And I'm like, look. I mean, I'm not sure I'm your candidate. I'm 20, I'm 20, I was 25 years old at the time, 26 now. I'm 25 years old. And, 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 and you know, he told me, he's like, look, you know, you're young, but I mean, that, that's fine. Um, you said engineering in college. And I mean, a lot of the, at least concepts in regards to the oil and gas industry, they do stem out of, you know, engineering, mechanical engineering. There's a lot of overlap, a lot of fluid dynamics. Um, so, and, and I'm like, all right, look. Because I'm also bad at saying no, right? I'm like, look, if you can't find anybody else to run, I'll sign up. But 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 I mean, find find someone you know different. And, and in, in reality, this stemmed more, I guess, from my own. Like I, I think in life, a lot of times people you know want to feel ready to do something, um, and, and you always put off doing things that, that you want to do because you don't feel like you're ready yet, right? Um, and uh, I felt like that was kind of like me at that moment, right? Like, like, like in, in, in reality, I was aware that, you know, most people in the road commission don't have any oil and gas background. They don't know anything about the industry. But, um, but I, I felt that, you know, you know I, I, I guess it was a lack of, I guess, I mean, irrespective of that. Um, so, so we left it at that, hung up the phone. And uh, they they call, or he called me back the eighth of December. The deadline to sign up is the tenth. And and he's like, "Hi, hey, maybe you don't find anybody else. Would you be willing 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 to sign up?" What a what a sales pitch. <laughs> and uh, you know, I'm like, "Well, I'm a man of my word, so I mean, I I, I guess I will." So, I think the eighth or ninth, I put in my 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 I guess the paper to sign up for road commission. And I bought a bunch of books. Um, started reading up about it. At least got more or less first on what the issues were. And it's it's fascinating, especially because you're dealing with so many different rights in regards to the road commission. Like for example, you've got the people that own the mineral rights, the the the, the people that own the surface rights. You've got you know people access the groundwater. You've got people that you know at least breathe in the air rights, so, so that they have uh, rights to clean air. So as a road commission, I, I guess you're you're kind of um, so. There's a good quote by Thomas Sowell that the quote goes: "There are no solutions. There's only trade-offs." And I, I think that that's very true, especially with the Railroad Commission, that it's, it's hard to sometimes say, you know, where, where my rights start and, and yours begin. But, but I do think that the Railroad Commission, at the very least, needs a little more transparency in regards to, um, regards to how it makes those trade-offs. So this is okay. So this is actually really cool. Cause let me tell you what I, what I kind of struggle with. And, you know, I've, I was in oil and gas for call it 25 years. Um, and the free market principles as a libertarian 
it's really easy to apply to sneaker companies, right? If Nike makes crappy shoes, go buy Adidas, right? And the market punishes those that make bad sneakers, you know? Uh, you, I believe, Mark, uh, to your point about trade-offs, I agree. There is no utopia. Guess what? Trotsky was wrong, you know? I mean, there is no utopia. There are only, there are only these trade-offs. I even think markets do a better job with social type issues. If the Yankees don't want to sign a black player, guess what? The Dodgers will, you know, and and I generally have a, a, a belief that the freer the markets are, the better folks have a tendency to do, uh, et cetera. The, the one thing that I'm going to kind of challenge you to do, being the libertarian looking at our industry, is we got to figure out how to navigate that. And let me throw some things at you. One, our product is literally a barrel of oil that goes on a global market. So you don't know if you bought a diamondback barrel of oil. You don't know if you bought a pioneer barrel of oil. So there's an element of the consumer, you know, looking at the oil and gas company, doesn't know what they just bought. Um, and plus it's got to go through the refineries, all that sort of stuff. There's that. The, the second thing that happens, you and I have both talked about how we despise monopolies in effect, when an oil and gas company signs a lease to go, you know, we go to farmer Bob and we say, Hey, you're 20,000 acre. We want to sign a lease because we want to drill here you've in effect created a monopoly on that 20,000 acres. Um, and that leads to, to difficulties because there are rights that Farmer Bob has in that lease. Hey, if you don't drill wells over certain times, if you stop production, I can go lease to somebody else. But for the most part, I mean, literally their lease is in effect 100 years out in our business where you've created monopolies. And so... It's going to be interesting watching you with your libertarian beliefs study this industry and figure out where is their ba where is that balance because even me the libertarian and I'm all for free markets and you know blah 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 you go there's got to be at least somewhat of a framework there and I don't know that I have a good answer for it yeah it's it's funny like one of the things I think is interesting is for example flared gas right Right now, it's a big, it's it, or it's it's an issue that 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 lots of people talk about, um, and it's funny because at least when you're talking about flared gas, you you know I don't only have to see it at least in regards to Texas, but also in regards to the at the national and international level, right? So I mean, if you just say like for example, we flared X amount of cubic feet of 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 let's say casting head gas in Texas last year, right? That means nothing, right? Because you have to normalize it in regards to at least how many barrels were extracted, right? Right. And the thing is that, for example, like if you do look at at least uh, the, the flaring intensities, so how much gas is flared versus how many barrels of oil are extracted, in Texas, it's much lower than the rest of the world, right? So if you're an environmentalist group, I mean, your gut in instinct would say, well, let's stop flaring in Texas, right? Which, I mean, would then also require them taking these walls offline, which would also boost the price of the barrel, right? But I guess those are secondary effects because their only objective is to, is to stop flaring. The thing is that, well, in a net, now that oil that's not being produced by Texans is being produced elsewhere, right? In, in areas in which, you know, at least the environmental practices aren't as 
um, let, let's say conscientious, right? Sure. So as a whole, you've actually probably increased the amount of flaring internationally, right? And at least whenever you're talking about these issues, you're talking them in respects to the atmosphere, right? It's not like the atmosphere is like, oh, well, you know, this is, you know, let's say a cubic foot of methane into the atmosphere from China. It's only going to affect China, not the U.S. That's not you know, the way You know it what works. I say on the podcast? There's not a peeing and non-peeing part of the pool. Somebody pees in the pool. You got pee in the pool. You're you know, the pool. That's the, yeah. yeah. No, it. No, that no that that's a that's a great point, and I think I think one of the things that's frustrating for me because I I think energy is so important that it deserves a fair, intellectually honest discussion because you just framed something that's real. I mean, there is a cost to society of flaring. I mean, CO two emissions, pollution. I may think the cost is this much. Greta may think it's this much. In the end of all humanity, there is a cost. And right now, there's no price on it, right? There's only regulation to stop it. That, so we're, you know, so that would say, oh, Chuck, so you're for a carbon tax. I don't know. But at the end of the day, I, I do get, usually usually where markets work best is when everything's priced in, because then you can punish the the, the bad stuff. But where I was going with this is I think one of the things you're going to face is exactly that. It's the relative thing versus the absolute. The environmentalist is the absolute. No flaring. The relative person is like, well, let's triple oil production in Texas. One, because we flare less. And number two, we can at least watch it if it's here. I guarantee you there's nobody wearing a, a Greenpeace T-shirt watching the oil production in Venezuela, you know. So, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's funny. Cause I mean, growing, growing up on the border, you're very aware of both sides, right? What happens in the U S what happens in Mexico. Right. And it's funny because you have lots of people that, you know, have strong opinions in regards to how things should be done in the U S yet. I mean, they have no problems buying something else made in Mexico with not great working conditions. And I mean, it's, it's very much like out of sight, out of mind. The thing is that at least regulations is not necessarily, I think the answer to a lot of this stuff, um, like, for example, right now in the Bitcoin space, uh, they, they've been doing a lot of uh, uh, mining with flared gas, right? The, the nice thing about mining with flared gas is that it at least monetizes an asset that prior wasn't able or that previously you couldn't monetize, right? That you would flare it off, the casting head gas. The thing is that, you know, if, if we impose regulations in the U.S. to limit flaring, I mean, they're not going to respect that abroad. The thing is that if we innovate and do stuff like, for example, start mining Bitcoin to monetize that stranded energy asset, well, now all of a sudden, you know, they're doing it in Russia, they're doing it in, you know, Iraq, Iran, they're doing it in in uh, Nigeria, and they're not doing it because they care about the environment. They're caring about it because it makes them money. But the thing is that at least through allowing innovation in Texas, you're um, you're 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 creating things that are not only environmentally fa- favorable, but that are also you know economically viable and economically self sufficient. So I, I think that that's a great way, great way to reframe at least the way that we look at energy policy within the state of Texas. Yeah, no, I think I think definitely as we sit here and we have these discussions, the way I kind of frame it up is we ignore CO two going from three hundred parts per million to where are we today? Four hundred twenty five parts per million in the environment, and it looks like the temperature's up a point and a half because of that. Now. Some would argue 
the environmentalists always choose 1850 as the year, kind of the baseline, because it was the lowest year in the last 10,000 years. But we, you know, we can we can debate that. I do think we ignore it at our at our own peril. That being said, when you to your trade-offs point, which is a great one, is hydrocarbons and the burning of it do a lot for our standard of living. And the only people that can afford to go to net zero are the people that have really high standards of living, i.e. America, i.e. Europe. You know, Africa cannot go net zero and have any sort of standard of living. Asia is still struggling with it. So I think kind of the balancing act you do is really twofold is one, we've got to get people to as high a standard of living as possible, as quick as possible. That's number one. And then number two, technology, technological innovation, human ingenuity, that's going to be what solves this problem. It is truly not going to be, we're going to put a wind turbine on every corner. It's just, it's just not, it's not going to happen. And I don't think it's even, even fair to, to, uh, suggest that as, as something. So you got to balance that. And ultimately what technology comes down to, if we're going to solve this problem, shots on goal, we need way more of it. We need to be funding that we need, we need, uh, inventors inventing scientists doing research, entrepreneurs starting companies. Cause at the, at the end of the day, it's, that's how 2050 2100 that's how we're going to get to to net zero it's not going to be because we all decide to go live in thatch huts it's fascinating like even for example in regards to the solar panel and uh, wind turbine and battery packs all that technology and you know people will tell me all the time they'll be like but i mean we have to transition to renewables it's cheaper it's like all right if it's cheaper do you have solar panels and a battery pack in your own home and they never say they do because it's because it's really not cheaper once you actually get to installing it and uh, at least uh, I mean the battery pack doesn't last forever it decays it's like it's like your phone battery you, know, you have to replace it every so often and it's really not cheaper than just you know being plugged into the grid right and, and then the grid for for a large part of the power does come from fossil fuels um it's uh I I think that's always like a very interesting point in regards to to renewables um, also right now with our energy crisis it's not like you know. Over there in Europe, there or in Germany, they're calling you know for more wind turbines or more solar panels. They're not. I mean, they want more fossil fuels. That's, that's what they need to to burn and keep Although, the lights on. You know on. what? I'm gonna I'm gonna push back on you a little bit because this is weird. So uh, about a month ago, I was over in Europe with the three kids. They were being such a pain in the ass. It's like, where do y'all want to go? I want to go here. I want to go here. Finally, I was just like, all right, Kelly, name a city. She goes, Berlin. I go, okay. Sarah, name a city. Madrid. Charlie, name a city, Barcelona. So that's where we went, Berlin, Barcelona, Madrid. What was interesting about being in Berlin, could you think that Germany's going to be ground zero for this? I mean, they are falling off a cliff like nothing. None of the cab drivers are bitching about high gasoline prices. None of the shopkeepers, restaurants. And look, I get it. I don't speak German, so it's not like these were my best buddies and we were having heart-to-heart talks over beers, but you know how when you travel, you talk to people and stuff. There didn't seem to be any sort of concept or discussion or realization of just what's going on there. And so I posted that on Twitter. I got some feedback um, from some folks. One person just said, 
Well, the German government's kind of subsidizing the energy costs. So to some degree, the populace doesn't know. I don't know if that's true or not, but okay, that kind of makes sense. And the second thing somebody tweeted back is the Germans are just austere. I mean, that's they are going to pay their bill. They're not going to bitch about it. You know, I mean, one of the funniest things I've ever seen is the Germans lecturing the Greeks on uh, debt when the, the, the Greek debt crisis was going on. I mean, talk about, you know, they almost took a ruler out and slapped the Greeks on the hand when it was. So, so, but, you know, because I, I think what ultimately needs to happen to have a thoughtful energy policy, because I'm not anti-renewables, uh, uh, to your point, if they really are cheaper, let them go win in the market. Or why do we have to have all these tax credits to get them built if they truly are cheaper? Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, it's going to take, I think, popular uprising of the people demanding a thoughtful energy policy, as opposed to we're going to get a president elected who's thoughtful about energy and leads the charge in that direction. Yeah. Yeah. It's It's also funny, like, Another thing that, I mean, just through this campaign, I'm trying to just absorb information and just, is that the U.S., it's not a democracy. The U.S., it's a constitutional republic. And um, and the founding fathers were very thoughtful in regards to making it that. So the founding fathers thought that at least a democracy, at least a pure democracy in which, you know, you, you elect a president, kind of does whatever he wants. They, they kind of assumed that that would devolve into mob rule, right? And uh, that usually was in the majority oppressing a minority, right? So th that's why they, you know, made the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, to establish certain rights that all individuals are entitled to, and uh, and I mean, and then you also elect your, you know, your representatives to then represent you. But I mean, while while the Constitution protects certain rights that you have, right? And uh, the, the thing is that I don't really think it's inappropriate for politicians to be saying like, this is the energy that we're going to be using going on into the future. I mean, as a politician, you're not there for an industry. You're kind of just there to, I guess, protect individuals, the interests of, of, of society, right? However you want to measure that. But I mean, in regards to pollution being there in, I mean, on behalf of renewables or on behalf of oil and gas, I mean, at least personally, I feel like, you know, so far as everyone's respecting everybody, I really don't care if you're using renewables or oil and gas, right? But let the market decide that, like at least the, the, the tax credit scheme, it's, from my understanding, I'm not too sure how it works, but but I'm just going to say it aloud, and then if I'm wrong, you could correct me. But at least how how I understand it is that that there, there's investment tax credit and there's a production tax credit, right? And what these credits do is that if you're a utility, this the the government will pay you to take off your coal, nuclear, uh, natural gas, uh, energy, if there's renewable supply coming onto the market, right? So, so they'll pay you to basically favor renewables as opposed to these other ones, right? Which, um, which it, it does create a lot of problems, especially especially if you're, I mean, one of these, if you if you're a natural gas utility, a coal power plant, a nuclear plant, because I mean now, I mean the government's explicitly favoring one form of energy versus another, right? And I kind of don't feel like that's the role of the government, but I mean, this this is my opinion. Um, well, you're the one running for office, so you should give your opinion. Yeah. No, I, because um, the the problem I have with the government is, you know, I'm a libertarian, so I think I think you know, at the end of the day, uh, they shouldn't even meet. They shouldn't get together. You know, the world's way too important to allow them to make laws. But 
No, you're right. I mean, when they start picking favorites, and the problem is, is they're not being intellectually honest about those favorites. Hey, because because I don't know how all the tax credits work in the renewable space, but I get pitch deals all the time where it's like, hey, if we fund the solar farm, we'll get all our money back through tax credits. So if the farm makes any money, that's where we'll actually make some, but your downside is zero. You'll get all your money back. So I'm like, oh, that's kind of interesting. But if the government's going to favor that, the government also needs to say, hey, when the sun is not shining, we will not have electricity. If it's a really, really cloudy day, guess what? We're not going to have electricity on that day. So we're pushing this, but don't assume you're going to have the reliability, the base load that a coal plant can provide or a nuclear plant can provide. And that that's my problem, that they're not being intellectually honest mm-hmm. about it. I I, I'm with you. I wish government didn't have opinions about that kind of stuff, but yeah, to not even be intellectually honest about it. Yeah. No, and people don't, don't really even understand at least how a grader works. You know, whenever I talk to people at the road commission, I try to more explain why we do need a, you know, some baseload power, some, uh, some peaker plants, natural gas plants, and how at least putting a sporadic load like renewables onto there makes the operation of the grid itself very complicated. Right. So, um, that, that's one thing that when I talk to people, they don't understand that very well. So, so I feel like once we're able to at least establish that, then we're able to have a more constructive conversation. Um, even in regards to, you mentioned the carbon credits, which I, I think is really funny because, you know, whenever they mention carbon credits, they mention it in regards to, to the oil and gas sector, right? But it's like, I mean, okay. Well, for, first of all, there's interesting discussion going on in regards to carbon dioxide itself, right? Like, there's there's no debate on whether or not carbon dioxide heats the atmosphere. It, it does, but it also doesn't heat the atmosphere in a linear rate, right? So, for example, if you're putting in one ton of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, the second ton that you're emitting is only going to have half the, the greenhouse effect of the first one, right? Or, so, if, for example, one ton of greenhouse of carbon dioxide heats the atmosphere by one degree, then that second ton is only going to heat it by half a degree, right? So, it's kind of like... Uh, how do you say it? it's logarithmic? It kind of like asymptotes off. So I mean, I mean, first off, that's one thing that that uh, is is interesting, right? Uh, secondly, like you were saying, if you look at it at least historically, there's been points that we've had a way higher carbon dioxide than we've had today. And um, and then secondly, there's that whole law, uh, which I, I started looking into it recently. I, I I've had people talk 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 to me about it. And I'm just curious about the what's it? It's like it's like the fertilizer effect or the that the greening effect that that more carbon dioxide is, is better for the it's, plants. It to is breathe plant in. food. It's I mean, plant food. yeah, that's that's what they uh, that's what they do. I always say that technology to get rid of CO two in the atmosphere actually exists. It's called a plant. Uh, there's also a whole diatribe I've done like a couple of times on the podcast. Uh, you know what? One of the greatest removers of carbon on the planet is it's actually the whale. So if you think about it, we had, call it 5 million whales on the planet. We figure out whale blubber is really good. We burn lamps on it and all that. So what do we do? We whale, we kill as many whales as we can. We got Moby Dick out there, you know, going to town. Um, So we take the whale population. I think the whale population today is about 1.2 million whales out there. That's what we've done over the last 200 years. What's interesting is a whale will sequester carbon in its body of like, I don't know, 33, 35 tons. 
And what does it do? It dies and it sinks to the bottom of the ocean. So it takes the carbon away. So that's one thing that, that it does. The second thing is what, what, what actually filters out, call it 40% of the CO2 on the planet? Plankton. You know, I mean, algae in the ocean, right? Basically. And the greatest um, fertilizer for plankton is whale poop. You know, it's got all the nutrients in it that, that plankton needs. So in effect, I mean, we potentially have done the rise in carbon by just getting rid of the whales, you know? Um, and so anyway, I throw that out there because no, I, th I think you're right. I mean, I think we do know that more CO2 will warm. We just don't know how much CO2 actually leads to the warming versus bigger forces. I mean, you know, for a while there, the Russians were able to track the temperature on the earth based on solar flares, you know, and, and actually said it had nothing to do with our environment. So, but again, I don't want to come off as a climate denier, but because uh, I do think we ignore this at our, at our own peril. My, my whole point is we just, we need to know what we know, what we don't know, and be careful and measured on how we how we get there. So, well, and then the thing that, that I was I was going out with that with that whole I guess like side train of thought was that they never talk about, for example, putting a carbon tax on solar panels or wind turbines that we make in China. I mean, I mean why we, not? Well, we, or put a slave labor tax on. Yeah, it. I yeah, mean, exactly. All the solar I mean, panels are made slave labor. I, I mean, but it's a thing. That's my big issue with the carbon tax. That it seems almost directed towards oil and gas industry, which I mean, that's fine. If you want to do a war on carbon dioxide, which if you want to do that, I mean, let's make it across the board. We, we can't just make it in, in regards to, but, but kind of like I would all sing it very much out of mind, out of sight and people don't, people don't mind. I've, I've said on Twitter, and I think I've said this on the podcast before too, is the person that ought to pay to plug in a, and abandon all the old wells in the state of Texas ought to be Amazon. Because they're the ones, in all seriousness, since the shale revolution, and we had, you know, we had minus $37 oil there for a while. I mean, who benefited? It was all their vans running around, all the transportation. They're the ones that truly benefited from low oil prices, more, more so than the companies. <laughs> I don't think that gets there. So, like so, so let's, let's do this. All right, so you're gonna run. You're running for railroad commissioner. You got Wayne. You got Luke. Um, what have you generated, if any, in terms of positions? You got a website. You're gonna you're gonna do all that so people can read what you're thinking. Yeah, yeah. I, I've got a website on there. I, I guess one of the big issues that, that we're focusing on is orphan wells. Um, at least, for example, if I become railroad commissioner, I I I would like that by the time my six year tenure ends, which that would be the end of it. There would be no second term. I, I want to live my life <laughs> as a non-politician. Um, I, I would like to actually see the number of orphan wells going down year by year, right? Which as of now, I guess the amount of wells that the state's currently plugging versus the amount of wells that the current that the state's currently taking online, or I guess orphan wells that the state's currently taking online. I mean, the amount of orphan wells in Texas is going up and up and up, right? So we're not actually getting on top of that issue. Um, another thing, and I'll say this is is that that's actually just a matter of enforcing the laws that are on the books. That's not a new law. Um, I think a fair 
ask from the railroad commission might be give me a little more money so I can hire 25 other people to drive around and, and make sure that's happening. But I don't, I don't think that's really a, a, a big deal. And I will, I will say this, I, generally my sense is with oil and gas companies, I mean, we used to take the position, you know, 20 years ago when we buy a property, old well bores were actually worth the equipment you could yank out of them, right? So, you know, we can get $50,000 worth of equipment out there. It'll cost us $10,000 to plug it. Boom, we got $40,000 there. We used to kind of look at it. You know, watching that through the years, it became, and we didn't even include that in the in the analysis of what to pay. But then, you know, later on, it's like, all right, we're going to have to plug all these wells. Let's put that money in. But it was always 30 and 40 years out, so it didn't matter. I mean, my last days at Kane, that was like the first sheet. We have this many wells. Here's the schedule over the next five years to get rid of them. And uh, and so it, it's being taken seriously, but there there does need to be some herding of the cats there. Yeah. Yeah. Like we're right now opening up a tire cycling facility in, in South Texas in Brownsville. And we're just shredding tires up into crumb rubber. It's so like rubber, rubber, powder, rubber granule. And uh, because of the, the TCQ requires that we have a bond in place for in case we go bankrupt so that the tires can all be taken care of, right? So like, for example, I feel like having financial assurances in place, some cabins of the company, or at least some kind of plan, like that'd be a good step forward. Um, besides that, um, I, I do think that, I mean, we, like you we were saying before, I do think they need some kind of regulation, right? In order to at least protect our private property rights and also our individual freedoms. I don't think you need a lot of it. The thing that I do think that the, uh, so a candidate for road commission for the Libertarian Party, I think four or five, four, four or six years ago, suggested a, an, an idea that every year, ten percent of all regulations on the books should be should be reevaluated for efficacy, right? So, just you know, how is this regulation made? Is it you know at least uh, accomplishing the, the the intended result? And if not, I mean, get rid of it or change it. But the but the thing is that I mean, regulations are are interesting, right? Because one hand, you buy regulations that actually do serve the public right at large, and then but you also have regulations that that um, are just there to you know raise operating costs and just force small companies into consolidating to bigger ones, and to basically leverage the government to force these you know big super big companies right, which in reality doesn't service, service anybody. Um, so you've got I guess two theories in regards to to governance. You've got a command and control right. So it's one that you set a very rigid framework in regards to how companies should operate. Which in general, bigger companies tend to like this because they always know that as long as they act within the parameters, if anything goes wrong, they could always say, hey, you know, we were being compliant. It's not our fault. And they could point the finger back to the regulator and no one gets in trouble. Plus, they can afford to have the compliance department because it's spread over a lot more revenue than me and you starting an oil and gas company and having to go hire a third partner to do compliance. Yeah. That would be fun. Would be, yeah. <laughs> no, it would. If I ever buy another working interest, just shoot me. And I will testify on your behalf to the judge. Yes. Yes. I told him to shoot me if I buy a working interest again. Um, and uh, the the other theory, I guess, is more is retribution, uh, restitution and retribution, right? So, so the thing is, you know, uh, make it clear that... Um, that, for example, if you make a mess, you have to clean it up, you know? So uh, there's, I think it's a Benjamin Franklin quote that says that uh, an ounce of the cure is worth a pound of the... Prevention. Or, or no, yeah, no, backwards. Yeah, a pound of prevention is worth it. 
Uh, yeah. Uh, so the cure. Yeah. And the, the hard thing about that, because I, I kind of agree with you, is unfortunately, if we leave that wide open and unfettered, it's mm-hmm. it's decided in the courts. Yeah. You know, and so potentially what I think we have to do, and we actually did this in Texas on tort reform, is you, you kind of have to put the framework around it. We're going to say that if you're in Hector County and your water gets destroyed by the oil and gas company, it's worth X. And we may all not agree on X or some people don't like it or whatever, but at least give framework to what the fight's about so that it can get, those issues can get settled in in a consistent and faster way than just everybody goes sue and let's let every judge decide this case or that case. Well, it's, it's also like, for example, if let's say Chevron does something bad, in uh, I don't know, on my property, right? Let's say I've got a hundred acres or a thousand acres, right? I mean, I don't have the resources to go out there and make a case against how you know the, this oil and gas operation contaminated my groundwater or whatever, right? right? So at least like again, the normal judicial system, if you don't have means, you get hired, you get you get a public defendant to to represent you, right? And I do think that that the road commission should at least have some kind of mechanism in place, maybe a public defendant type system, which I'm saying this, you know. Yeah, this kind is high like level. A, this is high level. No, I mm-hmm. I actually kind of like that. Maybe it's it's the uh, maybe they settle all disputes on Chuck Yates needs a job. The podcast, <laughs> come in. We we will the people's court. But, I would support that. I, would, uh, <laughs> I wouldn't. <laughs> that sounds miserable. <laughs> uh, but uh, oh, by the way, the funniest dispute I ever had is we had. We, we had leased some land. I want to say this was northern Louisiana or it was Oklahoma. And the CEO calls me up and goes, well, we got sued today. And I'm like, oh, man, what? what, what? And he goes, well, a landowner sued us claiming that I impregnated one of their cows. And I was like, well, did you? <laughs> the CEO was pissed. But, no, 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 of course not. But... Yeah, no, uh, I would love to have a case like that uh-huh. on Chuck Yates needs a job the podcast. <laughs> not a uh, not a big aquifer uh, uh-huh. damaging issue. What happened there? Did well? What did the court say or what? Uh, you know, you know what was you know what kind of sucked about it? It took about a year to get that case thrown out. I mean, okay. it was it was ultimately thrown out. I mean, but I think we even filed in a response like a couple uh, a copy of Gray's Anatomy, mm. the book, saying it's impossible for a, you know, for interspecies impregnation. <laughs> oh, so, so he thought he did it, yeah, personally, like him personally. Oh, I, I thought you brought a cow or something. No, like oh. a yeah, no, like a bull in. No, no, no. Oh, man, it, was, it was he was named. That's, that's absurd. That's why he, was, he he didn't talk to me for about two months because <laughs> my comment on well, did you? <laughs> So, okay. So I like this. So we're basically, we're going to enforce the rules on the books. We're going to get rid of abandoned wells. We're going to figure out some dispute mechanism that's potentially more fair. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, the, the retribution or the restitution and retribution versus con- command and control, I'm just saying that we should defer whenever possible to restitution and retribution type system, right? But like you're saying, it's, some, it's not feasible all the time because you're dealing with, you know, lots of, you know, very large negative externalities that could, you know, come about, you know, through at least improper regulation. But um so so that that there is a is is a, a big one. Uh 
what what else? I, I completely lost my train of thought. Um, That's all right. I I do like the one the the coming on and pledging the one term. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm you know who my hero is? My hero is Cincinnatus. He was a Roman emperor, and what had happened was Rome was being invaded, or you know something like that, and they made him emperor. And he went out and he fought off the Spartans or whoever, you know, whoever he fought off. And he served as emperor for 19 days. And then he quit and he went back to till the fields because he's like, y'all only needed me for those 19 days. I've, I've squelched the rebellion or whatever it was. Yeah, it, it's funny. I mean, people don't realize that. Like, I mean, it, the Road Commission matters a lot, right? And it's, it's significant. But the thing is that I think a lot of times, at least... Same happened to me when I ran my first race is that you get so involved with the issues that you kind of forget about things that actually matter. You know, like, for example, like right now, me and you're here having a conversation and it's nice. It's we're having a little moment, right? We probably won't see each other again, most likely. Um, and, and the thing is that whenever you're running for office, you, you kind of, I don't know, put a set of blinders on, right? And you kind of forget about all things that actually matter and are in front of you. Um, like, for example, with this whole camping, I've been able to spend less time with my family, less time with my friends. Which, which I mean, I, I love them a lot. And uh, I mean, I, I like my yoga practice. I, I've, I've, I've really lacked on my yoga practice. And I mean, there, there are things that are small, but, but I do think that there's lots of significance in at least devoting yourself to, to those smaller things. And sometimes when you start focusing on the macro too much, it kind of does take away a lot, a lot of your, I guess, a lot of your happiness yeah. per se. Um, so that, that's kind of why I said the one-term thing, because you know, at the end of the day, I want to live my life. I, it's, it's not like I want to be a politician <laughs> my, well, my and, entire and, life. And you also get, you get caught up in the trappings. I mean, it's, it's pretty easy to become a congressman and all of a sudden you're being driven everywhere you want to go and companies roll out lavish dinners for you and all. And it's just, and uh, they're, 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 I think that's actually really healthy to say, hey, I'm going to do it one term. So you can actually, if you know, company XYZ walks in with big campaign checks, like, I don't need it. I'm not running again. I think I think there's some 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 health to that. So I closed with Luke with the big question, and I'll close uh, I'll close with you the uh, the same thing. Any nudity on this campaign? Any nudity? You know, I mean, Sarah got her into the runoff with the uh, pump jack video. We, we've, what's, what's the plan? We've still got 60 days or 65 days or whatever it is. So it'll be to be determined. Oh, nice. But, there uh, we go. Stay uh, tuned on that. Uh, I'll leave it suspenseful. Hey, well, I appreciate you coming in and talking. This was uh, this was fun. And uh, I'm, actually, I'm actually impressed with, for not being an industry, an energy industry veteran, how you've picked stuff up. And I actually hope you continue because the libertarians do need a, a voice here because what I think we've, we've got, you know, what I always say about the Republicans and the Democrats is the Democrats are Trotsky and the Republicans are Stalin. You know, neither one of them's any good. Mm -hmm. So appreciate you coming in and I hope you stick with it. No, I, I appreciate a lot, Chuck. Thanks a lot.